Welcome to Wild West Podcast, where fact and legend merge. The Wild West Podcast presents the true accounts of individuals who settled in a town built out of hunger for money, regulated by fast guns who walked on both sides of the law, patrolling, investing in, and regulating the brothels, saloons, and gambling houses. These are the stories of the men who made the history of the Old West come alive, bringing with them the birth of legends, brought to order by a six-gun and laid to rest with their boots on. Join us now as we take you back in history to the legends of the Wild West. Daylight was shortly approaching darkness when we entered the small settlement. We tied our horses to the hitching post in front of the Lady Gay and entered the saloon. I could not help but notice the excitement this place offered me. The room, well balanced in saloon affluences, held a large bar in the center supplied with all kinds of liquors. In one corner sat a faro bank discounting to a crowd around it. In another, a roulette wheel and in the far corner sat a party engaged in playing cards. Two men were energetically slapping away with their cue sticks at the billiard table, while one man sat in a corner playing a fiddle. Hundreds of dollars were lying about on the tables, and among the crowd were the principal men of the territory. But what intrigued me was the beautiful and gracious lady who spun around on the wooden dance floor as she looked familiar to me. That is when Ben noticed my enthusiasm for the place and asked me over to meet his brother. I made my way over to the bar and continued to watch this graceful young lady twirl around the dance floor. I watched so intensely that I almost fell from tripping on an unnoticed boot. A banjo and piano duo performed a clumsy rendition of the house favorite, Sweet Betsy from Pike. The dancer made a valiant effort to match her talent with the musician's limited skills. The rough crowd around her was not interested in the out-of-tune music. Their eyes were fixed on the bellowing folds of her flaming red costume. When I reached the bar, Ben introduced me to Billy Thompson and his partner Harry Fleming. Fleming was an imposing figure, tidily dressed with a white shirt, and he wore wristbands on his sleeves to protect his calico cuffs. Billy, on the other hand, wore a brocaded vest, a Waterbury watch with a massive gold chain, strapped to the buttonhole and secured to his right pocket. A pair of six guns strapped to each leg gave the impression of a real gambler. Billy told me he ran the gambling tables in the Lady Gay and asked me if I would like a job running the faro table. He had heard of my success at Dodge City and that I was an excellent faro dealer. I looked over at Ben and smiled, for I knew he had given me the favor for the job. I looked back to the dance floor, noticing two rowdy men trying to catch a peek at the dancing girl's shapely bare legs. I could not help but notice how she was careful to only let them see enough of her leg to keep them and myself interested. One of the buffalo hunters stretched out his fervent, alkali-spattered dirty hand and attempted to reach under the dancer's yards of red fabric skirt. A big roar of laughter fell across the room on the first try. I looked over at Billy and asked, Do you want me to take care of this disrespect? Billy simply replied, No, I think not. That's my wife, Libby, and she knows how to take care of herself. 
The song ended when the performance was showered with applause and cheers. Many in the room, now deep in the consumption of whiskey, requested to see more. Libby smiled briefly in appreciation, curtsied the crowd, and said, Not tonight, boys. I'm all danced out. I saw her subconscious gesture of disgust, her nose wrinkled as she drew her head backward. Her face began to gleam with a little color of red, her eyes flashed across the room, and seemed to say with authority she had enough. She took a second bow, smiled, and hurried past the enthusiastic audience as she made her way to the bar, stood next to me, and asked for a glass of apple whiskey. As she stood next to me, I could not help but notice her scent. She was intoxicating. My thoughts ran uninhibited of how long I had been out in the wilderness. The stench of death and the smelly remains of buffalo hide stretched on the ground baking in the sun left my nostrils for a scent of freshly cut timber. She reached over the bar, looked into my eyes, and glanced over at Billy, who had just served her the drink. Who are you? She asked as she closed the space between us. I took in a deep breath to gain once more the air of freshness around me like the damp forest after a rainy day. She smelt heavenly, like fresh-scented pine and honey. Her aroma was like a drug to me and I couldn't get enough of it. His name is William, said Fleming. Yes, his name is William Masterson, scourged Billy Thompson. And I think you have taken his soul from him, Libby because he's having trouble remembering his name. They all laughed at Billy's statement. Billy, Libby, and Fleming brought me back to the awareness of the room. I just hired Masterson as a faro dealer, boasted Billy with a smile. I think you'll be a good one for us to have around. Plus, he needs a job. Ben stood at the end of the bar, smiled, and said he was headed over to Norton's place to pick up two friends. I watched Ben move to the front doors of the saloon when I became immediately distracted by Libby's presence. Libby looked directly into my eyes. A drop of sweat fell from her forehead, landing just above her right eyebrow. With one swipe of linen cloth to her forehead, she walked away from the bar. I watched her move across the dance floor to a large purple velvet chair. As Libby walked through the accumulation of roustabouts to her throne-like seat, I witnessed three grimy, bearded men cutting in front of her. They besieged her resting place, located in the far corner of the saloon, near a small exit door. One of the inebriated buffalo skinners started poking at a pair of prairie dogs with a long stick. Boys, I'd thank you to kindly stop that, she warned the unruly trio. The men turned to see who was speaking and then broke out into a hearty laugh once they saw her. Ignoring Libby, they continued pestering the animals. The animals slapped the stick back as it neared them, and each time the animal battered at the stick, the men would erupt with laughter. Libby watched the three men for a few moments, then slowly reached into her purse and removed a pistol. Pointing the gun at the men, she said, Don't make me ask you again. The intoxicated buffalo hunters turned to face Libby, and she aimed her pistol at the head of the man with a stick. Laughing, the man told her to go to hell. I'm on my way to hell, she responded, pulling the hammer back on the gun, but I don't mind sending you there first so you can warn them before I get there, she added. The buffalo hunter dropped the stick and he and his friends backed away from Libby's chair. 
One by one, they staggered out of the saloon. Libby put the gun back in her purse, scooped up her frightened pets, scratched their heads, and kissed them repeatedly. It was at that moment when Ben Thompson walked in the door with two ladies. Each held his arms in an escorted fashion. There she stood, just as Ben had described her. She was of middle height with full and rounded form. Her complexion resembled that of smooth caramel, her skin passing the delicate tones of golden brown as she ran her hand over her slender arm. She glanced in my direction, showing me a pair of critical-looking blue eyes, fixed between a slightly formed Roman nose with a small and nimble mouth. Her dark brown hair was neatly braided in a roll, gathering in an ornamented net, and gold tassels at the side. How sedate she looked. She presented her golden brown hands, fixing her elegant brooch in its place, and settled her glistening earrings. She garnered nicely in her burgundy dress with its broad black band rounding the skirt, its black pointed edgings setting off her dainty figure. At this point in time, I knew it had to be Molly Brennan. What will you have? asked Fleming, standing behind the bar. More than you can even imagine, I said. Harry Fleming reached under the counter. Well, let me brighten your evening up with a good starter. I have a special mix of red liquor. The finest liquor that is properly qualified to caress a gentleman's palate the way a gentleman's palate deserves to be caressed. Harry coughed under his breath and continued. Tonight, my friend, you will receive the finest, the true and uncontaminated fruitage of the perfect corn, and that shall be all the bourbon you taste with a spin on your night's end. Across the room, Ben pointed in my direction and then waved me over to an open table. Fleming, behind the bar, offered me a bottle and said, Good luck, my friend. Before the night is over, you will have two of the best flavors a man could wish for. This is your night and a fulfilling one indeed. Fleming then slapped me on my back, sending me in the direction of Ben and Molly's table. As I approached the table, I took off my hat, holding the unopened bottle of red liquor to my left. I followed Molly's bright and kind smile to the table where Ben stood and greeted me. Well, ladies, Ben stated in his English gentleman's accent, I would like for you to meet Mr. William Masterson, Indian fighter, scout, buffalo hunter, and hero of the West. A true legend in the making. Ben took a graceful gentleman's bow, waving his right hand below his waist upward in my direction, and concluded his salutations. He is a rescuer of young damsels in distress and hero of the adobe walls. Ben continued to stand and with a hand gesture made his second introduction. To my left is the darling of all darlings, Miss Mary Catherine Elder, better known as Kate Elder. Kate is a true traveler of the West. She gives us great honor this evening to visit us from her past residency of Tom Sherman's saloon in Dodge City. Ben pauses for a second to inspect the broadening smile from Kate's amusement of his second introduction. Then Kate looked over at me with a bigger smile, for she must have remembered the time when Ed and I had visited Tom Sherman's place in Dodge City. Now, with the grandness of all my introductions for this evening... And with the greatest of all honors, I present to you the most charming and beautiful Miss Molly Brennan. Ben points to an open chair across from Molly, and in a soft voice whispers to me, Why don't you join Molly in your acquaintance, Mr. Masterson? Miss Elder and I have some business to attend. 
Ben gives his elbow to Catherine. She stands, takes Ben by the arm, and they both move like assumed royalty in the direction of the bar. Wild West Podcast is now offering to our global listeners digital books of our most popular stories. To find out how you can order a book, go to boothillproductions.com and select publications. Now, back to our story. Molly and I shared time together between the recurrent uproars of the rowdy, boisterous crowd at the Lady Gay Saloon. Her voice was soft and sometimes hard to hear when a roar of laughter broke out, or a game of chance ended in disappointment. She told me how she had traveled west, and at a young age, she had turned to make a living as a dance hall girl. She said she was in Abilene for a few weeks, and was hired on at the Bullhead Saloon the day before Phil Cole had been assassinated. "'You were present when Phil was killed?' I asked. Molly sat silently after the uncomfortable emotion of grief. She paused for a moment, and once the anguish exhausted itself, she took a deep breath. This gave her the time to fully recover and to sufficiently speak. Yes, Molly solemnly stated. I was quite near him and saw the cowardly murder. It was wholly unexpected. No one thought that such an immoral act could be committed, or else I think someone would have prevented it. Molly paused then with a quiver in her voice and said, Oh, Mr. Masterson, it was a spineless act. A wretched, spineless act. Wild Bill was the assassin. I leaned forward. Tell me about it. All about it, just as it happened. Let me have the very facts. I want to know all the details. Molly pulled her kerchief from her sleeve and dotted away the tears in her eyes. Mr. Masterson, I will tell you exactly how it was, how it all happened, Molly said with sadness. It was not like the people of Abilene had reported. The newspapers have it all wrong. Would you like to have a drink before you continue? I asked, and extended the bottle over to her glass to pour her a drink. Thank you, she said. She told me how the cattle season had drawn to a close. She described how the Texans had made large drive, made quick sales, and received good profits. Molly explained how it was the fault of the Texas cattleboys to greatly cause their own self-injury. They were very generous with their money. She explained the ways Phil Cole protected the cattleboys from the sharpers and designing men. Phil taught mostly the younger cattleboys not to have confidence in all men. He told the cattle boys how many of the businessmen in Abilene were out to rob them more completely if their minds became confused with whiskey. Unfortunately, on this day, strong drink reached them, and they became impervious to every other mode of attack. After she concluded her story on the misfortunes of greed and how it takes over the goodwill of human virtue, I confirmed her belief that Phil Cole was a good man. So what caused the killing and how did it happen, I asked. Who began the frolic, no one knows, but it was commenced. The boys had a high, playful time. They had a farewell spree. You know what that is? Molly questioned. I'm not sure I do, I replied in puzzlement. I've been around a lot, I explained, but I'm not sure if I've seen or had any part of a farewell spree. Well, Molly pronounced, it's when they catch one of the most poorly dressed men in a room and absolutely tear all his clothes off, down to the least that could serve to hide his nakedness. 
They seek fun in first taking the hat and stomp it underfoot. Then they strip a man of his boots and cut them into kite strings. And when a man is completely naked in the world, the boys will carry him on their shoulders into some clothing establishment, and there outfit him finer and more thoroughly than he was before in all his life. This must be a rare day for the clothing merchants, I said. Molly then smiled as she found humor in my statement. It was indeed a rare day and time for the clothing merchants, but this was meant for no harm, did no harm to the dupe, and the cowboys intended no harm. The people of Abilene so regarded the matter as a way to show humor and not disrespect. I smiled at Molly and returned my thoughts by saying, I could say the dupe's tailor might say that, but I'm not sure how the naked man might fare after showing his private parts to an audience of onlookers. At length, Wild Bill came along. He said he was looking for Phil Cole. The boys gathered him, even though Wild Bill was the city marshal, and stripped him head to foot, naked as an Indian. He bore it all in good part. They then, on their shoulders, took him as they had done other companions and friends to the clothing store, and gave him the most elegant suit of clothes that could be purchased. So far, all is well, I said. The boys were preparing to leave the next morning, now near at hand, and Phil was going with them. This frolic had taken place to the east of the main street, a hundred yards or so. The boys went uptown, leaving Wild Bill at the store. Molly paused, cleared her throat, then resumed. Phil and his friends went westward to the corner when a savage dog tried to bite him. He pulled out his pistol and shot the dog, and then turned up the street northward and stopped in front of a saloon and leaned against a post. Wild Bill must have heard the shot and passed from the clothing store into an alley that ran alongside the store. Bill then ran up the alley and he got to the rear of the saloon in front of where Phil was standing. I was there when Wild Bill passed me at the rear of the saloon and proceeded to the front. Arriving at the front, he stopped and said, Phil Cole, you ought not to shot your pistol off, he said in a laughing and kindly way. At this moment, someone further up must have seen Wild Bill, and one of the boys said, Look yonder, Phil. Cole looked, and as he did so, Wild Bill pulled two Derringer pistols from his pocket and emptied them both, without a word, sign, or warning, into the heart of Cole, and at once jumped behind the door. Cole was mortally wounded, but he did not fall. Instead of dropping, he pulled out his pistol and shot three times at the assassin. But his nerves were too unsteady. The bullets only hit the door facing and ricocheted. While Phil was shooting, one of Wild Bill's deputies, a jailer by the name of Mike Williams, came running up and tried to enter the saloon to aid him, but was mistaken for Phil Cole. Wild Bill shot him in the head twice, and he fell back a corpse. About this time, Phil dropped. Wild Bill ran. In a few hours, poor Phil died. When Molly finished her story, I agreed with her and how she proclaimed that Wild Bill was an assassin. I then asked Molly what I thought to be two important questions. Where did you go after the incident, and have you told anyone besides me your story? Molly leaned over and whispered into my ear. The next day, I boarded the train dressed in black in mourning for Phil Cole. I left for Ellsworth, and no one knows what I saw that day. Not Ben, not Billy. Only you, Mr. Masterson, just you. I did not say a word, but I could tell Molly was stricken by her story. 
We sat in silence for a few seconds as I reached out my hand. She placed her hand in mine and I said, William. My first name is William. My parents named me William Bartholomew, but I prefer Barclay. Ben walked by the table and handed me a key, and the rest of the evening was closed behind a locked door. That's it for now. Remember to check out our Wild West podcast shows on iTunes Podcast or at wildwestpodcast.buzzsprout.com. We would like to conclude our show by reminding our listeners to check our up-and-coming digital bookstore by revisiting boothillproductions.com and select publications. Thanks for listening to our podcast. This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons attribute, non-commercial licenses. You can learn more about the legends of Dodge City by visiting our website at worldfamousgunfighters.com or visit us at boothillproductions.com.